Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Third Estate Podcast, where we talk about anything finance and whatever else comes to mind. I'm your host, AJ Abarca, and along with my co-host, Anton Bolich. Hi everyone. Um, today with us is uh, a good friend of mine, Justin. Uh, he, he works in the mortgage industry and previously worked in banking. Uh, he and I have been friends for a long time and uh, thought it'd be good to bring him on to kind of give a, a perspective from kind of the mortgage industry and the real estate market and what he's seeing because as many of you may know uh, in 2020 there's been a real boom uh, after the first month or two of the uh, COVID crisis so uh, Justin I want to say hi to everyone thank you for joining us yeah what's going on fellas thanks for having me thank you so um, I guess the question I want to ask you is uh, you know mortgages and you know the real estate boom is it's been going up with prices um, and with purchases, but also in the refinance area. What would you say is the biggest driver of kind of this groundswell of of growth in in the mortgage market in 2020 and now carrying into 2021? Yeah, well, you know what we saw what we saw in 2020 was was madness, right? We we entered the year. We had, you know, we knew what was going on overseas. We started to see a little bit of dip in interest rate in the very beginning, you know, January, February. And, you know, to be honest, all of us were looking at, wow, we're going to have <clears throat> maybe a couple weeks, a few short months of a low interest rate environment just until this, you know, situation gets sorted out um, and then back to normal business as usual, right? So um, what ended up happening, obviously, is we're still, you know, deep in this pandemic and we've been riding that low interest rate environment all the way through till today. So, you know, the biggest driving factor to answer your question there is going to be the interest rate environment. So many people came inquiring about refinances, you know, they wanted to lower their monthly payments. Uh, they wanted to tap into their equity. There was a lot of people who were a little bit worried about what was going on and wanted some extra cash on hand. Um, and then on the flip side too, we had a crazy purchase rush. This was one of those unheard of markets, right? Generally you're either in a purchase market or you're in a refinance market. We got hit with a double whammy all of a sudden. So being up in California, so just to kind of give a little bit of a, of a background, I'm a loan officer in the North Bay. Uh, we serve, you know, wine country mostly. Um, but we had a lot of people who were all of a sudden working from home in the tech industry who no longer needed to live in downtown San Francisco. So we had this crazy rush of people leaving um, that just, you know, exploded the purchase market at the same time. So it really was a wave of two things and uh, we're still feeling it. It's driven up purchase prices like crazy, um, but we still have a really heavy, heavy refinance market continued. Nice. So I have a question on that. You know, uh, we all know the the global financial crisis from 07 to, to 08, right? In regards to mortgage, a lot of individuals were basically purchasing real estate that they essentially couldn't afford, right? Just levered up. And obviously right. there were other... Leverage was all over the place, not just in regards to people buying homes. So I'm curious in your your perspective, are you seeing something like that, at least getting to the the frenzy you, you're just experiencing right now lately? Any concerns on that debt level side or do you see people leveraging up a bit and your comfort level a bit too much? So it's a good question and I've been asked that before and it's it's a it's a lot different than what we saw in 2007. So as you kind of mentioned, you know, back in 2007 people were simply purchasing things that they couldn't afford. There was, you know, very low, you know, need for verification of documents. 
people were purchasing three, four homes all of a sudden. And once people stop paying rent, how are you going to afford all of those mortgage payments? So what we saw with this wave was a little bit different because lending requirements actually got a little bit more strict. When we dove into this, you know, we had so many people losing their jobs. We didn't know, you know, you were going to be employed today, but were you going to be employed tomorrow? So the lending requirements actually stiffened. So the individuals who have been purchasing during this time are all very well qualified. There's nothing, you know, for a short period of time. I mean, we even had products that were dropped left and right. We had minimum lending requirements that were increased. So just for example, let's throw out there your, your qualifying credit score. Your credit score is one of the main things. It's it's an assessment of risk, right? So how risky are you to the lender? Um, that's what your credit score determines. So on a conventional loan, traditionally, a 620 credit score was the minimum. We immediately saw that shoot up to 660. So all of a sudden, if you were on that bubble of being a quote unquote risky borrower or on the riskier side, you were eliminated from qualification. So it was actually a wave of extremely well-qualified borrowers. And also to go back to just as an example, because this is the area that I'm most familiar with, these Bay Area workers, their qualification as far as income is also, you know, they were more than qualified. So we saw a wave of high qualified credit scores and high income earners. And that really has made up a, a major portion of what we've seen in this purchase market. And you know, going to that, you know, you said that there's a lot of people that uh, the, the standards stiffened and, and the people are well qualified. Um, I, I know, you know, you, you and I have discussed before about how a lot of people don't really have much insight into the mortgage loan process. And, you know, whether you're doing a purchase or a refi, you know, you want that process to, to be very streamlined and go quickly. Um, what are some of the things you see people doing that kind of make that, that process get drawn out or that they could be doing to help speed that up? If, if let's say they're trying to close quickly on a house to be more competitive, to buy it, or just, you know, refi sooner and so that things just don't get uh, kind of put, a, they don't fall behind on that, on that process. Yeah. So with, with this wave of volume, I mean, we had turn times and there were so many things that were impacting this, right? I mean, Obviously, supply chains all around the world when it comes to distribution and all that kind of stuff was heavily impacted. And we had similar issues in the mortgage world. Um, when you have so many borrowers, you know, submitting applications all at once, you have multiple, you know, parties that are included in this mortgage transaction. So all of a sudden, title companies, escrow officers were overwhelmed with new escrows, with new purchases, the lenders themselves, you know, we had X amount of underwriters that are used to processing so much volume, and then it doubled and tripled overnight. So it took a little while to kind of catch up and really be able to tackle these things. So one of the things with this crazy buyers, you know, you know, all of a sudden everybody coming and wanting to purchase a house is you had to be at the top when it comes to the attractiveness of your offer. So like you alluded to, that is quick turn times. They want, you know, sellers want to see what is the quickest that we can close on this home. So, you know, the individuals that came to the table with all their documents ready to go. And that's, you know, just to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a drop down, you know, that's going to be your most recent financial statement. So we're talking tax returns, W-2s, your pay stubs, um, you know, your assets such as bank statements. If you're coming to the qualification process with all that ready to go, that's putting you in such a, you know, 
more appealing to the lender to be able to put you up the front, basically to get that pre-approval spit out and write an attractive offer. So, you know, 30 days during this whole summer was, that was actually considered a quick close when traditionally, you know, in 2019, 2018, we were writing 21 day, 15 day offers like nothing. So um, that is a huge component um, that we saw. And, you know, I don't know if that entirely answers your question or if you can kind of, you know, ask it in a different way um, as far as that goes, but. That works. I mean, I, I think uh, having those documents and that information available, um, I know as a financial advisor, that was something that I've come into contact with plenty of times uh, in my career that there's sometimes a, a lack of urgency on the client's part to uh, kind of do the things that they need to do to help um, as an advisor, my job, or, you know, I've seen on, on the mortgage side, the same thing. And I think people, people need to do a, uh, keep in mind that, um, you know, help, help your advisor, whether it's a financial advisor or your mortgage, uh, agent, um, help them help you is, is the way I look at it. You know, they're, they're trying to do what they can to help you in your financial situation, um, so, you know, get, get them what they need quickly. That way it, it saves time in other areas. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think one thing I wanted to ask both of you, cause, uh, AJ, your first question about if we're seeing a mortgage, basically a mortgage bubble, uh, essentially is what you were asking, you know, is, is there a, a climb there? I don't think, and, and Justin mentioned this, that, it, the lending standards have tightened, but where I worry about from a, a mortgage uh, real estate bubble is not so much the lending standards like it was in 07, 08, but the interest rate aspect to it, right? Because what I'm seeing is uh, homes out there that are are just, to my view, they look overvalued. I saw a home, and this was in the North Bay as well. Um, it was 675 square feet, and it was they were asking for $675,000. I mean, on what planet are we living that that is a good deal? Now, that's obviously goes back to the interest rate. So, you know, AJ, why don't you start us off and then we'll finish with Justin because, you know, he's the professional, I guess, on on that. Well, I mean, for one, I, I, I'm i not quite sure and, and if, if my question was coming out that way that there's an actual mortgage bubble. It's more just interesting to see from his perspective, right? We hear about mortgage rates and going to your question in regards to interest rates and the asset prices, right? Not just in relation to homes. I mean, Anton, you and I have talked quite a bit of, you know, I know your opinions on this strongly in regards to fiscal monetary stimulus and the, the amount of liquidity and, and money that's out into the US system. If you're asking me about asset prices for homes, I think I think it depends on the region, right? And at what 2020 has shown us following this pandemic is there are definitely pockets out there that were overvalued. And I mean that you could say the same at least from my perspective with the the stock market, right? There are pockets of bubbles. Now some individuals would like to argue that the entire market's a bubble or extremely overvalued, but there are specific pockets and coming to real estate or areas where yeah do i think the the valuations of some of these homes are are overvalued of course uh 
you know, that's probably why I don't live there or have a house there. And that's probably why we're seeing one of the things I'd be interested, what your guys' perspective is, especially being in California, right, of all these news articles and the talk of individuals leaving the state, right? Joe Rogan, for example, leaving to, to go to Texas, Tesla to go. Um, so, yeah, I would say some areas there is overvalue in, in homes, but in some areas, I mean, if you're going to the Midwest, now I don't know those areas that well, like I don't travel within that region, but I would assume at least the prices sound more reasonable than, you know, buying a four for a four bedroom home over there versus Seattle or San Francisco, somewhere around the Bay area, it's, it's a lot cheaper. Is that justified or is it overvalued based in that region? I don't know. I don't have the expertise for that. So one of the interesting, you know, things that with volume, you know, the market is driven by the competition, right? So when all of a sudden you have a home and you get into a bidding war, we're seeing, and that was one of the crazy things over this summer, we're seeing every listing with 10 plus offers, which is unbelievable. And not just 10 plus offers at asking price. We're talking 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 over the asking price. So I think that's kind of what your question is, Anton, is you know, what could be the ramifications or, or why is this happening? And does that make this real estate market that we're in basically have all these overvalued houses that are going to come crashing down. And I don't think AJ's question, you know, to begin with was, was a bubble type of question. Um, I don't think that we're in the same environment, even close to what we were seeing in 2000, you know, 2007, 2008. But I do believe that we're in a little bit of a market where people are spending more than what the actual value of that home is. But who determines the market? You know, we do the, the offers are there and, and that really is, is, you know, your willingness to spend is what that market value is at that point in time. So I I don't know, will that come crashing down right now with where we live in Sonoma County, we are constantly appreciating in value. We haven't had a negative, uh, you know, or a, a drop in price, I should say in years since 2012 really is the last time that we saw homes that were not appreciating at least 4%, which is unheard of. So going back to, you know, people leaving California, would I necessarily go buy a house in Arkansas for 50,000 over asking price? Probably not. But do I think that you're going to get a return on your investment in Sonoma County? We're talking, you know, Healdsburg, Petaluma, Sebastopol, you know, even in Napa County, these are places that are consistently appreciating and they've, you know, they've doubled value even over the last, you know, eight, 10 years. Obviously they were a little bit down in the basement 10 years ago, but even going over the last four years. So, you know, I don't necessarily know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anything's going to be come crashing down around here. And I'm blessed that this is where I do serve and where I work, but you know, that's kind of just the standpoint from here in California. But just to go off of personal experience, my dad was looking to go purchase in Montana and the prices in Montana are insane right now compared to what you could have gotten for two years ago. So he's looking, you know, and he's, he's a hunter. He wants to be in, you know, he's got a very specific thing that he's looking for. Um, but you know, in the $600,000 price range, when last year, two years ago, before this like mass exodus of California and other States going to these, you know, less populated states, you know, you could have bought that same thing for 250 or 300,000. So do I see the potential of when we're no longer working from home and these people move back to the, 
you know, to the main areas where their works are located, I could see that happening in those, in those areas. Well, it's, 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 uh, here's the thing though, is the California question is such that, um, well, let me actually back up. So the, the market overvaluation in the real estate market, I think is tied to the interest rate environment, right? Because people's incomes, I don't think have, have kept up um, with the f- speed at which real estate prices have climbed, but it's just a factor of interest rates dropped so low that it's making those payments more affordable. And when people can afford more uh, from a borrowing standpoint, then the prices of these homes have gone up. So I wonder once interest rates do eventually climb, uh, what that's going to do to the property values. Because uh, then if interest rates climb, then then your payment that you're going to be able to uh, afford is is going to decrease from, at least from a, uh, a price that you're seeing on these homes. And the other thing too is that I noticed is that these appraisals are coming in sometimes a little bit lower. But uh, I guess going to the California question, the people leaving California, I mean, they're leaving for two reasons, right? They're leaving because uh, California's business practices have, have made companies leave the state um, and go to states like Texas and whatnot, but also just, uh, I think the cost of living, right? It's, it's climbing in California. And so they're trying to go to these other States. Um, but what's funny is as Justin just mentioned, even States like Montana are no longer as cheap as they were. But I, I wonder, I think Montana, I wonder, I, I do know of some Californians moving to Montana, but I wonder if how much of that is, attributable to Californians moving to Montana, or is it just the overall interest rate environment across the board, making it so that prices are going up? Because I think Texas is, you can definitely attribute the growth in Texas to more than just interest rates. That's businesses going to California. Um, I don't know of of businesses and in, in Californians or going to Montana like they are to Texas. It's because uh, Anton wants to go to Montana. Yeah, everybody's farmer. Yeah, that's right. Everybody <laughs> stay away from Montana. Uh, Crushed his dream, telling me he's going to pay double yeah. for his little yeah. private ranch out there. Yeah. But well, yeah, I mean, it comes back to you. So you're right. I mean, the interest rates are obviously a driving force for people purchasing because you're going to be able to afford the same amount of house for a lower payment. So that's obviously attractive. But it's also the, I mean, you have to account for this crazy demand for like what's going on with our lifestyles right so when everybody started working from home and your apartment living and you have a roommate two roommates you don't have an office you don't have anything people are all of a sudden working from home on their bed you know in meetings for eight hours a day so you have this attractive interest rate but you also have this demand for lifestyle and and what you need now just to function on your daily life i mean do you I know that we want to break it always down into numbers, but doesn't don't you think that that accounts for something as well? I mean, people are not wanting to be in cramped apartments. People don't need to be, you know, a five minute white walk or a bus ride away from their job any longer. They can be working hours and hours away. So, how much do you think is con- that's a contributing factor? Not just the interest rate and the affordability, because you're right, incomes aren't necessarily just shooting up, the affordability is coming from the low interest rate environment. But I'm seeing more people, more clients coming in who are doing it because it's necessary for the lifestyle right now. Of course, they want to take advantage of the, you know, the low cost, but it comes more down to, you know, quality of living. 
I mean, I definitely agree with that as far as you have a lot of people from San Francisco that have moved into the North Bay wine country because it's north of them. There's more space. And, you know, the COVID environment, if you're locked down in a city, you are very, it's, it's like being in prison, right? I mean, you are very restricted because you are, you're in a small apartment. You can't really go out outside. Um, whereas if you're in the country, you can breathe some air and it's, there's more space between you and a neighbor. Maybe you have a yard if you're in a house. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely some areas that there's, that was more of a contributing factor, but, um, but if I zoom out overall, I would say, I don't think the lifestyle choice, um, I don't think people leaving California to go to some of these States is because they are now, they've been now given the freedom from a work perspective. I mean, some of them it's, it's. That is a contributing factor, but it's more that, hey, I can't afford to live in California. So now that I do have the freedom, I'm going to move to a state where I I can afford it uh, because of the cost of living. Um, because the other thing, too, that we saw, right, in 2020 was forbearance on loans. I mean, what do you guys what do you guys think about the, you know, the effects? Because that is still, I feel like, yet to be seen. Um, people that basically are taking a, a holiday on paying their loans, those those payments are going to be coming due. Um, and those are going to be huge payments. Uh, we don't even know how that's going to affect prices and people's financial situations. Well, yeah, you're, I mean, you're seeing that across the board, right? Not only just uh, in mortgages, mortgage payments, but rent, right? Rent and uh, homes, rent for commercial properties, businesses, Right. There's actually uh, one that I was looking at where they haven't been paying rent since since the pandemic, renting out a warehouse space, not generating any sort of revenue. So, I mean, what's going to happen? I at this point, I, I can't give you an opinion or my thoughts on that. It's, it's really going to come down to the data for me. I don't know if, Justin, if you have some ideas of, of what you think would real quick, like Justin, government will pass. Yeah, on that, by the way, uh, maybe do a, a quick tell people what, what, how forbearance actually works, because there's a lot of people, right, that think that it just, it's just going to add a couple months to the end of their loan or that that for that payment, once they start repaying, it's going to be again tacked on at the end. And that's not how it works. So maybe tell people a little bit about how it's actually going to work in case. So <clears throat> it's, that's a loaded question. Um, it's still just like everything, you know, it's kind of a TBD exactly how that's going to work. But at the the beginning of this, the way that forbearance is designed, the way that it's structured is to give you, and I don't want to use the word forgiveness because it's not loan forgiveness. And that's often what it's, you know, misinterpreted that you are being forgiven for three months or that it's being tacked on the end. So the way that it essentially works is that if you were to enter forbearance, you are given some leeway to where your mortgage payment is not due on the following, you know, first of the month, like it generally is. So let's say, for example, you know, this obviously started really getting intense in March um, when people really started to get scared. We started to really see the first wave of forbearance in May. So let's say, for example, you entered into forbearance. You don't have to make your May 1st payment. They're telling you, you don't have to make your June payment. And they're also saying, hey, you don't even have to make your July payment. How awesome is that? To a lot of homeowners, that was attractive because maybe somebody in the family lost their job or they just didn't know what was going on. Self-employed people just were not generating income. 
Um, so it was attractive to a lot of us. What is, you know, forgotten about the forbearance piece of it is that on that 90th day, those three payments are due in full. That is, that's the, that's the bottom line of what forbearance is. There's been some wiggle room because this has continued so far beyond where forbearance has continued. Uh, and that's where I say it's yet kind of a TBD because how can we possibly expect somebody to make 12 months of payments at once? You know, when, when forbearance was, you know, originated and the way that it's written in, um, for a 90 day thing, it's somewhat doable, I guess, even though for most people it's not. Um, and that's where it gets tricky. We were, we had no idea what was going to happen on day 90. If all of a sudden millions of people's mortgages were, you know, who they were 90 day due became due, how many foreclosures were going to happen because of that. Um, but we still haven't yet to see the effects. I really don't, I don't have a full, you know, answer to that. But for everybody, you know, listening, remember that forbearance is not forgiveness. That is going to be due and it's going to be due sooner rather than later. Um, and, you know, you're, you're basically taking money from one pocket, putting in the other for a, you know, a short period of time. But at a certain point, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to come due. So that's still TBD though. Yeah, and that's because that's what I was seeing. I was I was reading up on that a little bit in the summer, and I was seeing I, I think the two different groups. Right, there were people that were taking forbearance because they truly, uh, you know, they lost their job right during COVID, and and they didn't have the income incoming um, to pay, make that payment. Right, so in that scenario, if let's say you were on forbearance, and now you have to make, let's say it was a ninety days that you for you know you you were not paying, paying that would be very difficult because it's not like once you start working again that you have this chunk of money that comes in. You're, you're, let's say you're making the exact same that you were making prior to losing your job. That was only able, affording you to make that one payment for most people because we all know very few people have been saving, have that rainy day fund set aside for uh you know, 12 months of, of expenses that in case something happens. So those people, that's a situation where they're in trouble, right? But then I was also reading up on people that were going into forbearance because they, they looked at it as a, as a forgiveness and that was, which was not right. Or they looked at it as, let's say that their last payment was scheduled to end June of 2035. They looked at it as, okay, it's just going to move and again, using the 90-day example, it's just going to move it 90 days further down the road. So instead of June of 2035, it would be, you know, September or, you know, October of 2035, which again is not accurate. So uh, I I think that's something that, again, like some of these programs that have been rolled out, they didn't really, the communication was a little bit lacking on that end. Yeah. And I, and I do want to make it clear also that if you entered forbearance, I'm not saying that you did anything wrong. Forbearance is there. It's a tool, right? It's supposed to be used. It's supposed to be there for your benefit. Um, so I didn't want to imply that it was something that you did wrong, but it's really important to be educated and know exactly what that is because we, we did have quite a few misinformed clients um, that we actually set up a couple of different structures and ways to get them you know, quote unquote payments off of their mortgage um, by refinancing, taking advantage of the lower interest rate environment, not having a payment due in the month in which we close your loan. And naturally your first payment is not due until the following month after closing as well. So we kind of, you know, once we educated a couple of our clients who were thinking about that, but 
you know, they were still working. There wasn't a real reason other than they would prefer, like you said, that group of people, there was a group that, you know, preferred to have three months off. Sure. Why not? Um, but once again, educating them that, Hey, your $3,000 a month is just going to be due in 90 days and it's going to be 9,000. Uh, that didn't sound so attractive. Right. So, you know, if you used forbearance as a tool to get you by, uh, it was necessary for a lot of us. So again, I, I don't want to make anybody feel like they did something wrong by, by utilizing that. But anytime there's those programs out there, it's really important to call your mortgage servicer to ask them, you know, what is the implication of this? Because there's usually a little bit more to it. There's no such thing as free money in anything we do. Right. Well, and that's, and that's, I think that hits at the heart of it. And it's something that I'm, I've tried to emphasize multiple times on the few podcasts that we've done so far is we need to start looking further down the road than just one step ahead. Uh, and I think that's a key aspect to it because uh, too many times we are, okay, what's, what does this mean? Oh, I get a payment off. Right. But that's not, when, when is that payment going to be due? That's the next question. And what are the terms by which that payment is going to be due? Because it's, there is no free lunch and uh, it's, it, that's, that was key. So especially too, when you have people that let's say that they were, um, you know, not making those payments, but then taking that money that would have gone towards the payment and they were, if they were going out and spending it because they said, Oh, look, I have all this money that's now in my account because if they were working, um, you know, that money needs to be, make sure that they are saving it or if they're spending it, then they better have the money from some other source to help make that payment, um, later on. But I, I think that segues pretty well with, you know, your experience when you were, uh, in banking prior to mortgage, you know, I think, you know, we all, you've heard about people that, uh, they're, you get to see people's, uh, decision-making when it comes to their, their spending on the banking side a little bit more. Um, what was something that you noticed, uh, when you were in banking that was, I think like a theme or something that was very common with, with the customers that you dealt with? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of themes there, but, um, you know, to, to probably go down the road that you're asking something that we saw all the time, which just blew my mind, you know, and this was, this was at the very beginning of my career, right? This was fresh out of college. I was trying to get my feet wet in finance. Um, you know, I joined a big corporate type of bank and you're on the front lines, right? You're, you're dealing with people's accounts, you're doing small consumer loans, but you have access to, you know, the front of the line stories, right? And these are individuals that are coming in asking for two, three thousand dollars personal loans or credit cards because they are loaning, they are borrowing money to pay for their everyday essentials, right? So I'd be looking at these checking accounts and these savings accounts with nothing in them. You know, and could they have had accounts elsewhere? Sure. I'm, I'm sure that they could, that I had no idea, but there was a big percentage of individuals that walked through that door that were asking to, you know, extend higher lines of credit to borrow more money to pay for everyday essentials when their bank accounts were, were nothing. So that was, you know, something that was eye opening, um, in terms of, you know, how a lot of us are, you know, barely squeezing by and not having these rainy day funds and, you know, it kind of goes back to that point that you were talking about when people, you know, when your when your loan does come due, let's say you did spend that money, if you didn't have that rainy day fund, and you didn't have money set aside to pay for an emergency or something like that, how how are you going to get by? How are you going to make that payment? How are you going to, you know, pay for that medical bill or 
that ambulance ride or whatever that might be in your life. So that was one of the biggest alarming things that really, you know, I had to take a look in the mirror as well with my own personal finances and, and realize, wow, I, I need to start saving. Um, I don't want to be in these situations because you also listen to the story of why that person needs that money. And it's my job, you know, at that point in time up front, you know, the underwriters sitting in the back room and, and underwriters are so black and white, right? They see an application come through, they see your credit score, they see your income, but they don't know the story. So my job was to paint the picture for that underwriter almost on an emotional level of like, hey, this person is asking for this. These are the reasons why. So I got to hear a lot of these, you know, pretty crazy stories and why that person was desperate for that money, for that car, for, you know, the personal loan. And, you know, there was obviously people who didn't, you know, need it for emergency reasons and they were getting lines of credit for other reasons. But, you know, that was that was some big um, that was a big deal to me definitely when I, you know, started hearing all that. So. And going, so I, I want to continue a with that and a little bit with your expertise in the mortgage side, because this mm-hmm. is, you know, we want this to be educational to, to listeners. So from your perspective, right, what's the best advice you can give in regards to individuals either looking to refinance or purchase their homes when it comes down to making sure that you are, I guess, a uh, good candidate, right, f- to get that mortgage that you need or that refi that you need. What what are some key components there? That you yeah, I mean, the the key components to the entire mortgage process it comes down to three things really. It comes down to your income, it comes down to your assets, and it comes down to your credit. So if you focus on those three things, you're going to be a qualifying candidate. So if you have a stable job and you're making money, that's one of the major qualifying components of a mortgage, right? So that's the first thing that's the hardest when it comes to qualification, because if you don't have a job, you simply will not qualify for a traditional mortgage. If you do not make enough money, that's going to determine what your purchasing price is, what your actually what your loan amount is. Um, and that goes for both your refinancing and for purchasing. So income is huge. That's the number one thing that we want to look at always. Are you employed and what's your income situation? Also, is it stable and what kind of income? Are you commissioned? Are you self-employed? Do you get a lot of bonuses? Are you straight salary W-2? So there's there's a lot of components that goes into the income side of things, but that's the first thing that we want to look up and make sure is is solid. You know, the second we talked about it a little bit is your credit worthiness, which again is just a it's an assessment of risk to the borrower. So the higher your credit score is, the lower the risk is, the lower the lender sees you as a risk. Um, and the lower interest rate you're going to qualify for. So that that determines a lot with your monthly payments. So why would you not want to maximize your credit score to lower that interest rate as much as possible? And then the third thing is assets. So this is not necessarily always assets for, you know, uh, collateral or anything that you have, you know, previous properties owned, but this is what do you have saved for a down payment? What's in your bank account? How much are you, you know, set to put forth when it comes to down payment and closing costs? And then what do you have in reserves too? So there's certain products that require reserves, which is, you know, funds that can be in a 401k or a retirement account. Um, but, you know, those are all those things that are evaluated. So if you shore up those three things, income, assets, and credit, you're going to be a well-qualified candidate. You know, AJ too, uh, and I've been a bit of it, uh, a part of this project, but speaking to the real estate market in the North Bay, um, jo- Justin last, uh, last year started this project where he, he and his his wife, uh, new wife, by the way, um, are you know working on a fixer upper, and 
uh, I have a new respect for roofing. Um, I helped him take the roof off and I don't want to ever have to do that ever again. Um, it was weather. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, <laughs> it was, it was brutal. I mean, I, I didn't eat anything all day, practically died out there. Yeah. We uh, chose, we chose the perfect day to be up on the roof. I could not believe it, but yeah, it's true. So yes, my wife and I, uh, we purchased last summer a fixer upper. Um, and you know, the, the financial reasons we made that decision came down to what we're talking about. You know, we weren't really willing to overspend and, and purchase at the top of the market when it came to purchase price. So we decided to, you know, put some sweat equity into a house that we felt was more affordable and kind of, you know, flip it and make it our own. So, uh, you know, we're eight months into the project now, we're still not done. It's been crazy. Uh, learned a lot, had a lot of good friends help me out though. So, um, you know, we wouldn't be able to do it without our families helping and, and pitching in and, you know, making major contributions, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild ride for sure. I mean, cause I, I mean, I've helped, uh, I've helped Justin a little bit on, on the project, but, um, my contribution has been minimal compared to some other people's. Um, but the thing that I liked about it is you get, you gain an appreciation for all the different tasks that go into either building a home or fixing a home, but you learn some new skills that I think our generation doesn't gain as often as maybe prior generations. I mean, I've had that conversation with Justin, um, you know, whether it's installing, uh, you know, taking the roof off and then putting it on or, uh, you know, installing windows, siding, um, that's all been fun. Um, but what has what is, and this is maybe less less of a finance question, but something because I think some everybody would be interested. Maybe they might be in those shoes where they might need to fix fix uh, a house up. What what's been kind of your, the f- favorite aspects to the project? Maybe not financially, uh, but uh, pro- definitely not financially. But uh, what are the favorite aspects and maybe some other things that you didn't foresee in that process? Yeah, there's no favorite aspects financially. <laughs> um, but I think I think in this whole process that I've learned a lot. I mean, because we're doing everything on our own, this is every single trade, right? So it's not just tearing off the roof, replacing the roof, right? If we did one thing or you were an expert in one, one trade or one field, but I'm appreciating all the nuances and all the steps that it takes, right? So we started on the exterior, and we pretty much started with the roof. I had no idea what went into a roof. I had no clue whatsoever. I, I looked at roof. There's some asphalt looking shingle type material on there. Awesome. We're going to replace that. We're going to peel those off. I had no idea what, you know, was underneath that and what the bones and what it took to really like make a roof and make sure that it didn't leak. Right. So there's so many different components to every step. And what I'm appreciating is, you know, going to different homes and knowing what's under that, right? So you look at a wall, it's painted, cool. You know that paint obviously has to happen. There's sheetrock on it, but what's under those walls, right? I'm starting to now understand and know the hours and hours and hours that it takes just to get to the point where you're ready to paint. So uh, for all the trades, you know, out there, plumbing, electrical, I mean, siding, we've done, we've literally torn out the entire house and built it back up. So anything that you have to do to a house we've done and yeah, it's been, it's been crazy, but I'm learning a lot. Um, 
I mean, also time management because I have a full-time job on top of this. So it's been, you know, it's been a good learning experience and it's cool. My dad is the one who's helping me out the most and uh, I get to spend time with him on the weekends and it's a pretty cool experience for the two of us to do this together too. Now, Justin, is this your, uh, is this your first home? This is, yep. So, so what recommendations or, or tips would you provide to other first home or people considering purchasing their first home and also on the mortgage side as well. So is this first home like I did, like the fixer upper, or is this just any, any first home purchase? Uh, let's go, let's go generic. Any okay. first home purchase. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest thing for a first time home buyer is it's all unknown for the first time, right? So what you need to do is you need to surround yourself with the right team. You need to ask a family member, ask a friend who's gone through the process and you need to get hooked up with the right person. You need a mortgage loan officer who is looking out for your best interests. You also need a real estate agent who's doing the same. So that is really the biggest component for first time home buyers is making sure that you are, you have the right people. And, you know, I'm a local lender. I'm all for having individuals that, you know, are more on that side that are in front of you and not necessarily, you know, the 1-800 numbers or the dot coms that you just get pre-approved and they're not there to answer questions. They're not there to hold your hand. There's so many questions. There's so many details that go into it and you have to be prepared. You have to know exactly what to expect um, to make sure that you're not only going to get the best deal, but that you're positioning yourself the right way because there's a lot of work if you and the other thing, this is the, a component to that. But start early. If you're not looking to purchase for another year, call someone today because you can start setting up and putting yourself in a position for 12 months from now where you're going to be better off. Because you might have something on your credit that you can improve that you would never know. So if you could go over a 12 month period from a 660 credit score to a 760, that's going to save you so much money in the immediate and in the long term rather than just going into it and, you know, ready to rock to buy a house next week. And you're still sitting at a 660 with not enough time to prepare to get to that 760. So, um, you know, starting early and surrounding yourself with the right team. Those are honestly the two best things. The rest are going to fall into place naturally because you're going to have the right people around you. Well, and, and the thing too, that, uh, going back to, let's say, AJ just asked about the generic side of it. Um, one thing is a kind of a third party observer with Justin's project that I noticed, and I'm going to definitely, if, if, if I move somewhere, cause I like older homes. I think the quality is better than some of the newer, uh, builds that I see out there that the newer builds, I think they were made in China and they're, they're going to break down in a couple years. Um, so I like older, <laughs> I like older All that homes. wood made in China, you know? Yeah. But, um, but one thing I noticed with with uh, you know a fixer upper is there's always uh, something. I don't mean this from a financial standpoint, but to Justin's comment about what's what's underneath the roof, there there was uh, there's always something that you're uncovering that okay, I'm going to fix this, but then when you go to fix that, there might be something else you need to fix, right? There's you need to plan for potentially going down a path or a road or a a branch of, of the road that you did not foresee. And so, um, yes, that obviously requires maybe some financial added financial input that you weren't planning for, but even just time and, and, and the energy aspect to it. Uh, because I know just in your project, it was, you had it kind of set forth of what you thought it was going to be. And obviously it, it, 
extended beyond that a little bit and but now you're you're going to be happy with what you have uh, yeah it the initial undertaking was not supposed to be anywhere near where it is today but the project evolved like you said so we had upon initial review and you're you know you're just looking at the outside right maybe you crawl under the house or in the attic and you can see okay x y and z needs to be done but as you start to uncover i mean you go down this rabbit hole of like well we might as well do it and so if you are in that, you know, where you're looking for a fixer upper, which is an awesome opportunity for a first time home buyer, if you have the people around you, or if you have the resources to do it, I think it's a good financial, you know, investment as well. I mean, the amount of equity that we're walking into because we're doing this ourselves is, you know, going to be amazing. So it's going to pay off in that. But, you know, you, you do start to uncover these things that it just makes sense to do. And it's going to button up and, and, really shear up the house in a in a way that would never happen right if you just skimped on those things so i believe that this house is built to last now um where before who knows i i had no idea what problem could have come up in a year two years and if i just stuck band-aids on it you know and something starts leaking through you're gonna have to spend more money to uh to eventually take it off to find that problem so you know diving deep in and and doing it right budget more money, budget more time, that's for sure, uh, than what you initially expect, but it's important to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I don't own a home yet, but that's, that's the goal for myself is, uh, is making sure that, you know, I find the right home, but again, it's, it's planning. I mean, the, the, I think that's a theme with any sort of financial podcast, right? Is people, people don't plan for uh, multiple scenarios. Don't just plan for a best case. You know, you got to plan for the best, plan for the worst and figure out what you're comfortable with. Um, and I think uh, mortgage, we, we started this off by talking about mortgage, but uh, that was definitely, uh, I think that's most people's biggest expense, right? So their home, um, I don't remember what the stat is. AJ, I don't know. Do you remember? There's a There's a stat out there that of how long it takes people to retire from when they finally pay off their home. But I know it, it's it's less than 10 years, at least it was uh, back in the early days of my career in 2011, 2012. But I think most people, once they paid off their, their home, it, they retire pretty quickly after that. And so it, it's one of those big decisions in people's lives um, that you know, it's, it's an important one and people need to put some time into it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, in regards to that, I know, I know there are options to, and Josh, maybe we could talk about this a little bit. There are ways that I've heard and that we're aware of where individuals essentially are quote unquote paying off their mortgage early, Right. What exactly, for the individuals that don't really know what that means, what exactly does that entail? How can you pay off your mortgage early on a you know a thirteen or a fifteen or thirty year loan? Yeah, so or I mean, Justin, excuse me. No, it's okay. It's all right. So <clears throat> there's accelerated payment schedules, right? So you you generally hear a thirty year fixed loan, but there's fifteen year loan options, and there's actually increments of five. So you know what we don't want to ever do for a borrower if their goal is to save money over the long run and to pay as little interest as possible, we need to evaluate, you know, with your existing mortgage, 
what is your remaining loan amortization? And does it make sense to, you know, if you're eight years into it, does it make sense to backtrack back to owing for 30 years? Or does it make more sense to maybe look into a 25-year option or a 20-year option or even speed that up even quicker with a 15-year loan option? So the number one way that people pay off their loans earlier is shortening their loan amortization, which just means that your minimum payment every month is higher um, because you have less payments to pay that off in full. The other way, I mean, you could pay it off. You could make large principal payments. So we have people who pay $50,000 at a time. Um, the only thing with that is it doesn't change your payment. So your principal goes down, meaning the amount that you have left remaining on your loan has decreased, but your monthly payment stays the exact same. Um, so large principal payments is a big one. And then also people who just throw extra every single month religiously, $500 a month more on the principal and your amortization basically you know, you might have started with a 360 payment schedule, but you have caught up so much that it only took you, you know, 290 payments to pay it off in full. So those are usually, I mean, the most common ways that we see. Not a lot of people have the ability to pay it off all at once with a large lump sum. Um, so you either see a decent lump sum, but not the full amount, extra payments per month or shortening the loan schedule itself. So, um, one other last comment that I wanted to make about the real estate market, and I don't know if either of you guys saw this, uh, but I found it interesting and it made me think about um, kind of the future a little bit further out than just you know this year, next year, is they're talking about how the world's population has really started to decline and um, people are having fewer children. And you know, right now in certain areas of the country, they're having a big boom and building, right? And then in others, not so much. But I'm wondering what the effects on the real estate market is going to be when you have people, let's say, that only have one child, right? So it's, it's they're talking about how in the Western world, especially you're having a, you don't have that replacement value. So if let's say, you know, you have a home as a child, right? As an adult, but as a young adult, uh, that you're living in and your parents are living in another home. And then eventually when they pass away, they're going to pass that home on to you. Um, you know, what's going to happen? Because the other aspect too is, is younger people typically are going for a smaller yard. And, you know, I'm not to put words into your guys' mouth, but I don't, I mean, I don't think either of you probably in where you want to end up living, uh, you want a massive yard with a big upkeep. And so I wonder how that's going to affect um the the long-term real estate market as you we start to see the baby boomer generation starting to downsize as they get into retirement and they've already started retiring obviously but the, those older homes that have those bigger yards or bigger homes themselves right yeah i mean that's that's an interesting i've never really looked into that perspective but i mean you bring up the point with us having less children and one of the big i mean you know one of the big market, uh, you know, sectors for purchasing home is that step up buyer, right? You have the person who bought their first condo when they were 25 years old, you know, maybe they got married in it. Um, you know, now their spouse is living there with them, but when, you know, baby one comes, they're looking to upgrade, right? They're going to sell and they're going to buy a new bigger home or when baby two comes, whatever that might be. So you're right. There might be an impact with these, you know, with these individuals who are, totally content with living in the condo forever or the first single family residence they bought with a low maintenance yard, two bedrooms, one bath. If you don't have any, you know, 
what more do you really need? So, and it kind of goes in with, with our, you know, the younger generations being a lot more minimalist and not needing as much square foot. Um, you know, this tiny home wave that we saw, which has kind of died out a little bit, but I don't know if you guys remember like two years ago, every like HGTV show out there was like tiny homes. And it was this, you know, us, our millennials and younger was just downsizing and we didn't need things right to make us happy. We were going to spend our money on, you know, experiences and, uh, you know, raves and all that travel, you know, exactly. So it is interesting. It's going to be, we have a totally different mindset with our generation and, and, definitely the generation, you know, that's a little bit younger than us. So, you know, who knows? And we're also going to have a lot of individuals as you know, the next 30 years goes on that have that make up a large percentage of who homeowners are. So how those homes get dispersed, you know, to their, you know, their heirs and children and what they decide to do with it is it's also going to be interesting to see. So because these, these social, these social, uh, let's say actions that people take do have ripple effects that I don't, Again, people look one step through it and then they just kind of stop the analysis and they don't realize, okay, that's going to lead to something that leads to something. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're seeing some homes, at least I know in the, in the Seattle area, right, where younger individuals, yeah, they're, they're not really planning on having too many kids or a big family, but they're getting multiple rooms, each of them to have an office, right? We're in the pandemic stage. So getting used to, oh, I don't want to be stuck working in my bedroom or working in the kitchen. I want to have a dedicated office or I want to have a dedicated area where I'm working out, right? So, I mean, I agree with Justin is we'll see what happens. Only time will tell with with all of this, right? But uh, yeah, we'll see. Because I've also seen areas where uh, one of the older homes, essentially it's, it's a one story, but multiple bedrooms takes up a lot of square footage. That's eventually knocked down. And then you see two townhomes, you know, two or three townhomes that are put up instead in its place. So it'll really depend. And Justin, you bring up a good point on what happens with, with the demographic at the time. Right. And so on that note, Justin, uh, before we're coming, we're coming up here on the top of the hour, I've, any final thoughts, comments that you want to give out to the rest of the world with your extreme knowledge and expertise that you have? This has been very useful and educational for our viewers. Well, I want to thank you guys for for having me on and let me hang out for the last hour. And hopefully I'll, you know, I'll be able to make another appearance and, you know, go back and forth with you guys. But, you know, <clears throat> it's, I don't really know if I have a final comment, but it's, it's one of those things that this was such an unknown year and we're still, we're still dealing with it. So, uh, for, you know, people who are out there who are looking to purchase, and I've had so many clients that, you know, because what we're talking about, you know, it's so inflated. Um, I would say be patient. I think things are going to settle. Um, you know, interest rates are going to remain low for a little while. Um, I believe that the market is going to, you know, come back a little bit in terms of afford affordability and prices. So, you know, stay diligent, stay prepared, be ready to go, make sure that all of your finances are, you know, squared away. And again, that you have the right people around you. They're going to guide you in the right direction. We do this every single day. We know what to expect. We know what to see. Um, so if you are working with the right team, you know, you can't go wrong. So I think that, uh, I think that says it. Well, that's great advice. Thanks, Justin. Again, we will definitely have you on the show uh, here sometime in the future. And on that note, everyone, till next time, have a good one.